Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful privilege of being in your service, of knowing you and of knowing your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord for all the benefits that you have given us as Christians, the love, the joy, the peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, meekness, goodness, temperance, all the blessings and the fruit of the Spirit. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you and we worship you and we praise you because you are God and you are worthy and we worship you today and we thank you. In Jesus' name, please anoint this lesson, anoint whatever preaching you want to be preached, Father. Let this be for thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're here in 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, we're going to take just a second here to um, read a couple of verses here in 1 Thessalonians 2 before we get into the lesson. We'll notice a couple things. I do want to say also before we get in the lesson, our family prayer conference is coming up this week starting Thursday evening. So we will not be doing a Friday or a Saturday podcast, but we will have some prayer conference messages, Lord willing, um, to put up by the time that's done. We don't get good internet down there, so um, there won't be anything posted there for just a few days. And then there'll kind of be a backlog of extra stuff posted. We encourage you to um, avail yourself to that stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. Also, we've had the tent up in Lebanon there um, Saturday, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and so those meetings are put up online as well. The full meetings usually go up with the whole recorded webcast. So um, feel free to take a look at all that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 again. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. Now there's two parts to this verse. Number one, there's our entrance in unto you and that it was not in vain. And he's speaking to his brethren. And his brethren here that he's speaking to are they of the church of the Thessalonians. And he calls them brethren. He doesn't lord it over them. He doesn't, um, he doesn't have to remind them that he is um, some kind of special, most worshipful reverend or something like that. He simply calls them brethren. And even when the apostle Paul began his letters, Paul, an apostle called of God, etc., 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 he still often called the brethren, brethren beloved, brethren beloved, all this religion stuff. Listen, the more you know the Bible, the less you need religion, man's religion, and the less that stuff even makes any sense to you at all. The more you know your Bible, the, more, the easier it is to spot the phony stuff right away. Bam! Now, one of the ways that a lot of Christians that even know their Bibles get fooled is whenever they get around a bunch of sappy, milksop religious people who want to say brethren in a high sing-song voice, brethren, and they want to try and woo you in and try and get your money and all that kind of stuff, and they'll court you. They'll court you for, for your money, for your tithe. They won't act that way, but they'll make sure that you get all the attention and all the petting and all of, the, all of that that goes along with it. And there's a whole group of Christians out here that they think that's what church is all about, and if they don't get petted just right every time they show up at church, and they don't get pampered just right, and they don't get mentioned just enough, and they don't get their hands shaked enough times and all hand shaked 
<laughs> they don't get their hands shaken enough times, then they're going to leave out. And so that's the other side of this. The, the love in the Bible, whenever he talks about the brethren, is not this milksop, attention-grubbing love that wants everybody to pay attention to me and wants, wants to be the center of attention and wants everybody to notice me that so many Christians are plagued with today. The... Love in the Bible is a selfless love. It's a servant-hearted love. And Paul is saying to these brethren, he says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. Now, the entrance that they had had two parts. Their entrance was, first of all, the fact, the mere fact that they came to town. They showed up. When you show up, you have an entrance in. Now, we talk about making a grand entrance, right? Um, there's some people, their personality comes in the room before they even show up. You know they're on their way. There's other people, uh, people missionaries will tell you sometimes to, to some remote places in the where the people are in a very um, aboriginal state of living, where they're um, a very debased and degraded or degraded society, and where there's no bathing and everybody's dirty and everybody's sick, and how that you can sometimes smell the people coming before they get there. That's an entrance, isn't it? That's not the kind of entrance I want to make. You know, you you always know the um, here in the, the in the United States of America where there's toilet paper used, there's always the fear, because it has happened, that somebody will, after using the bathroom, they end up somehow catching some toilet paper and dragging a big piece of toilet paper behind them into the sanctuary when they go back to sit down. And invariably, they're the ones that sit up front. So there they go, walking up the aisle with a trail of toilet paper hanging out behind them. Um, and boy, that's not the entrance we want to make either. But whenever you go into a place, you make an entrance. And your presence in a place um, uh, will have some kind of an entrance. Some people like to make a quiet entrance. Some people don't like anybody to see them. I tend to be uh, one extreme or the other. I tend to most of the time want to just hide. And then sometimes in my flesh, I do want the attention. But it doesn't take long for me to prove how stupid that is because I do something stupid. And then I wish nobody had ever seen me. And I'm ready to go crawl into a hole again. And boy, isn't that how it works? Because pride goeth before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Now, and I might have gotten those reversed. Sometimes I do. Now, the entrance that they made in was just showing up at town. And as Christians, we make an entrance. When we go somewhere, we make an entrance. And there should be a noticeable difference about a Christian. When a Christian walks into a room, there should be an entrance made. Now, I'm not saying that you've got to walk in there with a sandwich board on, wearing long brown robes and a great big sign that says, The end is nigh, and that you've got to do that everywhere that you go. You don't need, listen, a Christian doesn't need necessarily to even have a sandwich board. And I'm not against those things if they're done right, if they're scriptural. Um, I'm for any kind of evangelism that's scriptural. But if you, but listen, if it's if it has to be that you have to define yourself by your externals, that that you have a certain uniform that you and your church people have to wear, and if you're not in that uniform, you can't be part of our fellowship. Then you've got the wrong kind of entrance, and actually, it will it will work in the opposite of what God wants it to be. Because whenever you come in in your little uniform that you require everyone to wear in order for them to attend your 
church, whenever you walk into a room or a place, people will instantly associate you with a group of people instead of associating you with Christ, and your little uniform is going to backfire on you and do the exact opposite of what it should do. Now, um, and you don't think that's true. Well, it's sorry, it's true. People will associate with your group. They will look at your group and they'll say, oh, that person's with this group. And they might not even know the Lord Jesus Christ. Besides that, did you know that your group, no matter how big or small your group is, your group will have phonies in it? You cannot make enough rules to keep the phonies out of your group. The Bible says, Jesus said that there were tares amongst the wheat, and if you rip up the tares, you'll rip up the wheat with it. I just found out from a friend about a Mennonite church up in Iowa that is accepting transgenderism. Is it Illinois? It's in Illinois. It's accepting transgenderism and promoting transgenderism, and it's a Mennonite church. Whoever would have thought such a thing could possibly happen? That is so outside the bounds, it's not even funny. God's word is clear. Marriage is between one man and one woman. And Mennonites tend to be some of the most conservative, some of the most straight-laced Christians that you'll run into. The problem is not all Mennonites are saved. And I know that might just sink your boat out there today, but not all Mennonites are saved. You don't get saved by joining a church. You don't get saved by changing your apparel. You don't get saved by putting on a head covering. And you can do all of those external things and still be lost as a goose in a snowstorm. And on your way to hell and have all of those externals down. And out there, you've got a Mennonite church um, accepting transgenderism. So now, guess what's going to happen to those people in that area? They are going to associate over time, if something doesn't change, over time they will associate transgenderism with Mennonites. Who would have thought that would be possible? That's insanity. That's insanity. It absolutely blows my mind that that could even happen. That was the furthest thing that I would have ever thought would have been associated with any Mennonite church. You say, well, that's a good thing. See, you have some good associations with the Mennonites. I do. I love the Mennonites. I praise God um, for every saved Mennonite. Um, The problem is the extra biblical rules that are not um, found in Scripture the way that they are enforced on the congregations. And this is what I'm talking about. Whenever you start putting all these extra rules, and then your entrance that you make into a community becomes they notice the rules and they notice the extras. And instead of seeing people as just people, and again, I'm not advocating immodesty. I'm not advocating um, going against clear scripture. I am, but I'm not advocating extra rules either. Extra biblical rules. That's called a yoke of bondage in the scriptures. And you're applying your convictions to other people and making yourself a little club based on your convictions. And what happens is now everybody's known by your club instead of by your Savior. And they're no, now everyone's known by your convictions and not by the Savior. And what will happen is, as over time, people will associate whatever their local group of your club or your camp, whatever their group does, they associate with you because you're part of that camp. Now, you could apply this over to the Bible Baptist group, Bible Baptist Fellowship. I love a lot of Bible Baptist Fellowship people, and I'm really grateful to the Lord for them. Nothing against them at all. Um, 
And I, I'm for them. Love those people. And but they have some very, very um, specific rules that they have that are part of their group that are, sorry, extra biblical, extra biblical that aren't bad rules, but they're extra biblical. And what happens is whenever the emphasis shifts to the rules instead of the Savior, you will begin to be known for your rules. I'll give you another group that um, this happened to, and this is a group even um, even less rule-driven, and that is the ATI group and the IBLP group the, with Brother Bill Gothard. And what a wonderful blessing so much of his stuff is. Yet they had all these conferences, and at their conferences they wanted a dress code, and pretty Pretty soon people began thinking that the dress code was the only way that you could be modest. And other people said, oh, they think that that's the only way that you can be modest. So you had two groups, the groups that tried to make an entrance that looked like IBLP and the groups that hated the entrance of IBLP. And then all the focus shifted from Christ to the stupid rules. Now, sometimes you got to have rules to get along. Sometimes you do have to draw some lines somewhere. But as much as is possible, we're supposed to draw those lines on Scripture. Boy, did I get on a rabbit trail. Wow. In any case, we're going to chase this rabbit and kill it and move on from it. So ATI, all these other groups, the more rules that you put in place that are not biblical requirements for Christianity, no matter how good your intentions are, do you hear me today? Do you hear me? No matter how good your intentions are, at the end of the road, your group will begin to be associated by the rules instead of the Savior. And people will always do that. Does that mean it's right for people to do that? No, but people are fallen. And you have to expect people to act like fallen people because that's how people are going to act whether they should or not. And so your group will begin to be associated with your little set of rules. And next thing you know, you're so anybody that follows your little rules will be lumped by the average person into the same camp. And then whenever they go off the deep end, then you will be lumped in with them. Do you hear me today? Does that mean that you shouldn't be modest because modest people have gone off the deep end? Absolutely not. Does that mean that you shouldn't do any, have anything to do with anybody that has any rules? Absolutely not. I'm just telling you that your entrance matters. Your entrance matters. And if you enter, if you, if you try and enter a place... This, we're talking about the entrance here. Entering a place. Stepping in. The first time you meet somebody. The first time you walk into a town. The first time you drive into a town. The first time you go into a church building matters. First impressions matter. The world knows this. Do you hear me today? The world knows this. Did you know that your first impression that you get of somebody is most likely how you will think of them for years to come? It will take many, 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 many more meetings and many more exposures to those people before your mind can be changed about them um, from your first impressions that you got of them. Do you hear me today? Your first impression matters. And our first impression must must point people to Christ. Our entrance must point people to Christ. Paul got three weeks in Thessalonica. Three measly weeks in Thessalonica. <coughs> Excuse me. 
three weeks to preach the gospel. And if he had started with anything but the gospel, there would be no church in Thessalonica. Do you hear me today? If he had started with anything besides the gospel, if he had allowed his pet preferences to stand in the way of the gospel, there would be no church in Thessalonica. Do you hear me today? If he had allowed his personal convictions to keep him from ministering to the people that God had sent him to, there would be no church in Thessalonica. He got three weeks. And he said to the Corinthian church, he said, I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. And we've got to get back to the basic fundamental doctrines of salvation and preach them because we have a world that is going to hell. And we're so busy in Christendom fighting and dividing and parsing and picking at the little differences between the groups that we can't get along anymore and we can't work together anymore. And I know we can't be ecumenical. I understand that we can't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I agree with that wholeheartedly 100% I am not advocating um, yoking up with unbelievers listen to me today one of the most deadly and damnable things that has happened to evangelical churches in America is the yoking up with the catholic church to promote um, right to life Yes, babies need to live yes abortion is abomination but the catholic church is an abomination too And by yoking up with the Catholic Church, we have brought in devils and we have made an alliance with devils and it has undermined the gospel in our churches all across America. I'm not for ecumenicalism, but there is an entrance that needs to be made with the gospel and that entrance needs to get past denominational distinctives a little bit here. Do you hear me? we got to let go of some of our old traditional ideas that are maybe just not exactly 100% biblical. A lot of times, guess what happens? And this, this is a good thing. You go and you read your Bible and you study your Bible and you get some bedrock truth from the Word of God. And because of that bedrock truth from the Word of God, other things begin to line up in your life. And even though the Bible doesn't say, listen to me carefully here, I'm going to try to be careful in what I say. Even though the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not be a socialist. Do you hear me? Even though the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not be a socialist, a clear reading of the Bible and a careful study of the Bible will reveal to you that socialism is out of hell. And pretty soon you know that you shouldn't be involved with socialism. But if you allow what you have learned from the Bible about socialism to become the primary thing in your mind and the driving force behind what you do, even if you are right... There may be churches that never start, and there may be souls that are never saved, and your entrance into everywhere you go will be in vain because your entrance will not be of Christ. It will be of something else. And you can do that with dress codes. You can do it with politics. You can do it with all kinds of things in this life. Whether or not you drive a tractor or whether or not you drive a buggy, you can make your entrance into a place absolutely ineffective for God and in vain by, minor, by majoring on the minors instead of on the majors. That doesn't mean your convictions don't matter. 
That doesn't mean you might not, you might be right about some of those things. You might be right and it might be important, but it's not as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whenever your convictions and your rules and your standards become more important than carrying forward the gospel of Christ and the fellowship of the saints, and you are willing to exclude people from fellowship that do not follow your rules, brother, you're off the deep end. You have missed the boat. You have broken fellowship with Almighty God because he says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanseth us from all sin. And you're so caught up on your little rules and your little regulations and your little personal convictions that are maybe really good applications of Scripture. Maybe they are spot on. Maybe God has really shown you something and maybe other people miss it. But whenever you go beyond what the Word of God says and begin to impose that on other people and restrict fellowship based upon extra biblical convictions, you have broken fellowship with the Lord you claim to follow. You're out of balance, you're out of focus, and your entrance is going to be in vain. Paul says here, yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. That means it accomplished its purpose. And what was its purpose? Look back in chapter 1. It says, so that ye were in samples, in verse 7, to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, for they themselves show of us what mannering of entering in we had unto you. There it is again, that entering in the inn. And listen, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Listen to me today. Smoking those death stick cigarettes is sick. It's going to kill you early. It'll give you bad breath. It'll rot your teeth. You'll probably get cancer. It's a bad habit. It makes you stinky. It makes you ugly. It, it is not an appropriate thing to do, and it's damaging to your body. We know from the Word of God that the body of the individual believer is supposed to be the temple of the Holy Ghost. Is that right? Your physical body, in Corinthians, he says, is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He says, if any man defile the temple, him will God destroy. And those cigarettes defile that temple. Okay, there's an application there. But it's not a direct application, it's indirect. They don't defile the temple in a, in a moral sense. Just in a physical health sense. And those old death sticks, those things are so nasty, but let me tell you something, and let me tell you straight. A man can smoke a cigarette and win other souls to Christ. And before you poo-poo on that, why don't you throw away all your books by Charles Spurgeon? Because he was a smoker. One of the greatest preachers that ever lived was a smoker. And you, would, you wouldn't even let him in your church. If he showed up in his little suit and beard and he didn't match the way that you look and the way that you talk and he pulls out his old pipe or he pulls out a cigar and lights it up and you'd say, what are you doing? You sure wouldn't let him in the pulpit and you sure wouldn't let him stay in the church. And I've got a point in this. My point is not that it's okay to smoke because it's not. My point is that that is a minor issue. 
And we can make it a major issue. And next thing you know, because it's now the big issue, we're cutting off fellowship with a great man of God. How can he be a great man of God and smoke? I don't know. It blows my mind. But he was a great man of God. And God used him. And he smoked. One man told me once, he says, well, I smoke a pipe, but that's not a big deal. Spurgeon smoked a pipe, and I looked over at that brother who knew better and shouldn't be smoking a pipe, and I said, brother, when you can preach like Spurgeon, go ahead and smoke like Spurgeon. And he about fell over laughing and, as far as I know, quit his little pipe habit that he was developing. Now, we're not justifying the smoking. I'm just telling you, you're going to ruin your entrance if you major on the minors. If we don't let go of some of our personal convictions and our personal preferences and our, and our accurate applications of the Bible on some very real things that really do matter, but that are not primary in the Scripture and are not spelled out for us in the Scripture, if we're not willing to let go of some of those things to carry the gospel forward and win souls for Christ, our entrance will be in vain. And I'm preaching to myself today. I'm number one at this. Once I see it and I see it's right, everybody else better see it. And if they don't, then I want to make everybody see it. I know that. It's, this is human nature. We're all that way. Once you know something's right, you want everybody else to see it. You say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not that way. I'm a liberal. I'm tolerant. And you say, oh, so you're tolerant, right? Yes, I'm tolerant. So if, if I go to town and I happen to put my dog in the car and then I go into the store and you think it's too hot for my car, my dog in the car, what are you going to do about it? Oh, well, that's awful. That's animal abuse. I would call the hotline. I'll call the police. I'll get everybody involved. I'll get you thrown in jail. Yeah, you're real tolerant. See, don't give me that. It doesn't matter whether you're a flaming atheist or whether you're a born-again Bible believer. Human nature wants to make everybody else do everything the way that I do it because I obviously know the best way to do it. And I'm telling you, if we can't drop that fleshly, carnal, carnal, baby Christian attitude and get a little bit of spiritual maturity and zero in on the things that really matter, our entrance is going to be in vain. He said to them, our entrance was not in vain. Our entering in, look at verse 9, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Do you hear that today? What was the effect of the entering in of Paul the Apostle and the evangelistic band to Thessalonica? In three short weeks, they turned to God from idols and to wait for his dear son from heaven, for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. This is the goal. This is the end game. Now let's look at that entrance in just a little bit more detail because there's another pitfall. First of all, we can major on the minors and we we can enter into a place try, pushing for social reform. Another one of those minors we can run on is drug use. Do you hear me today? Drug use is wrong, but it is not the unpardonable sin. And did you know that looking at a woman with lust in your heart is worse than taking heroin? Do you hear me today? God didn't say in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not abuse drugs, but he did say thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Do you hear me today? And we've got churches in this nation that are majoring on the minors. And they're all about drug reform and about um, helping people in drugs to recover. But their women are running around naked in front of their men, showing off their thighs and showing off their breasts and showing off everything else. And their churches are overrun with adultery. Do you hear me today? Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. Unstable souls, the Bible says. And that's what you find them to be. And I appreciate their desire and their zeal to help some people get over some drugs. But the problem is, majoring on the minor has made their entrance in vain. And the light is nearly extinguished from this land. And the gospel is stalled out. And not going forward, it's turned into a social gospel. Where if we can just reform or renovate or remodel some people's lives and get them off of drugs then we can feel good about ourselves and say that we have fruit even though those people are still unstable souls with no foundation in the doctrines of Christ and unsaved by and large but they think they're saved because they got delivered from drugs let me tell you something today we have a cemetery here in town full of hundreds of people who are delivered from drugs they're never going to take another drug they're six feet under the ground the worms have eaten their flesh they're no less people than they ever were their bodies have decayed but their soul is eternal and whether they're burning in the lake of fire or whether they're in heaven today praising God they're never going to be tempted by marijuana they're never going to be tempted by crack they're never going to put a cigarette in their lips they are beyond it they won't touch a drop of alcohol they're not even by the way going to look with lust they're not going to commit adultery they're not going to commit fornication the gospel is bigger than quitting bad behavior and that is not repentance by the way repentance does not mean quitting my bad behavior repentance means turning and aligning my heart with God's heart which results in a change of my behavior but not a change of behavior that that does not equal repentance it's the change of the heart that equals repentance and the change of the heart is evidenced by the change of the direction of the life If you repent, you will change your life. But if you change your life, you may not repent. And in fact, one of the greatest death blows to salvation for many lost sinners is all of these programs that help sinners and prop up sinners and give sinners all the help that they can ever need to overcome the couple sins that they don't like that are culturally unacceptable while never dealing with the fact that that sinner is a sinner by nature, that he is lost and dead in trespasses and sins, that even the prayer of the wicked man is an abomination and they never tell him the truth that he's going to die and go to hell not because of his drugs not because of his liquor not because he gets angry not even because of adultery or idolatry but ultimately because he is a sinner a rebel against almighty God and that his position before God is that of an offender of a rebel and that he will be judged and damned and sent to an eternal fire because of his sins except he repent Not just of two or three sins, except he repent of the reality that he is a sinner. You hear me today? We got to get back to the majors. We got to major on the majors and not the minors. He says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. 
We're going to keep plowing here today. I want us to look at the other pitfall. Not everybody got saved there in 1 Thessalonians or in the town of Thessalonica. Not everyone got saved. Now, if you think that everybody getting saved is what it takes to have success, if you're a number nose counter, if, you're, if your thing is nickels and noses, and you want to know how much money was raised and how many people um, got saved, you've got the wrong attitude. You've missed the gospel. The Bible says in the closing words of the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul preached the gospel and some believed the things which were spoken and some believed not. There are going to be some people that don't believe. The success of your entrance is not based upon the number of the conversions, but upon the power of the coming of the gospel of Christ. The success of your entrance into a place, whether or not it's in vain, is measured by the power of the gospel of Christ to change souls. And there's two ways people change. Whenever the gospel comes in power, people either run to the devil, take up arms, and launch full-scale war against the gospel, or they turn from their idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. Do you hear me today? You cannot control which way they go. When the gospel comes in power, it's going to move some people. But you don't get to choose which way they move. That's between them and God. The devil's in the middle of all that, trying to get them to move away from God. Listen to me today. Whenever you take a, whenever you take a bunch of dishes and put them on the table, and you cover that table with cups... The whole thing covered over with cups. And then you pull out a great big roaster pan and shove it into the middle of that table. What's going to happen? Cups are going every direction, right? Because you brought a larger object in that had a bunch of force behind it. And all of that energy was going somewhere. And those cups had to move. When God Almighty comes down in a town... This is the entrance that we're looking for. Ultimately, our entrance into a town, into a place, into a store, into a home, into a family's life, into an individual's life, our entrance and the success of it is not measured by which direction the people go. It's measured by the, whether or not the Holy Spirit of God used you and dealt with those people through you. And the direction they go when you enter if you're right with God, is not up to you. Now, we already talked about vain entrances where you enter in and they go, oh, I need to wear a head covering to be holy. They missed the whole thing. Do you hear me? If that's their takeaway, they missed the whole thing. And you may walk away from an, a, listen to me, you can have a head covering if you want one. That's fine. The Bible does say women should be covered and it gives a couple options. It gives the hair and it gives head covering and it gives absolutely no rules or patterns. Do you hear me today? And if you have acceptable rules and patterns for size and shape of your head coverings, you're so unbiblical, it makes God sick. And everybody's got to fit in a certain size and a certain shape. That's a bunch of unbiblical. It's a bunch of childish. It's a bunch of baby games. It's just a bunch of garbage. You listen to me. You go read that Bible. You tell me where you found that pattern. You tell me where you found the rules about exactly how much head it should cover. Exactly what kind of fabric. Exactly what kind of color. That's a bunch of baby, baby games. That's carnal. 
It's carnality. It's nothing but carnality. It's thick as it's as thick carnality as a Christian coming in shorty shorts. It's the same sin, just the opposite side. It's all external. It's all rules. It has nothing to do with scripture. It's extra scriptural rules that you're placing on other people, and it destroys your witness. They might, if somebody ever, you try and talk to them about the Lord and they walk away saying, well, that sure was a sweet lady and I sure like them and I'd like to know more about Jesus, but uh, that hat thing, that's, I'd have to wear one of those hats. And then, and they go away thinking about that hat thing instead of about the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you missed it. You missed it. You say, well, that never happens to you. Oh, it does happen to me. I have no idea how many times it's happened to me where my appearance, something I'm doing, has shut somebody off, and it's something that I could have altered. I had liberty in Christ to have altered it, but I was insensitive to the people around me, and instead of becoming all things to all men, like the Apostle Paul said, I had my way I was going to do it, and I ruined my entrance because of my obstinance. I don't even know how many times I've done that. We can all do it. Now, their entrance here was not in vain, but not everybody got saved. There in Thessalonica, they had a pretty bad reaction from part of it. Go to Acts 17, quickly. Acts chapter 17. See if I can find it. Acts chapter 17. I found Acts. Back here somewhere. We're going to look at Thessalonica here, the, the actual account in the Bible of Paul's entrance into Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some... Of them believed, not all, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Now, devout in your Bible, in your authorized version Bible, is always used, as far as I've ever been able to find, and I have not done an exhaustive study on this, but it is always used, as far as I've ever found it, regarding Jews. So these are devout Greeks, means that they are Jewish Greeks whether they're proselytes or whether they've actually converted all the way to Judaism, they are devout Greeks. A great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few, but the Jews which believed not moved with envy. So here's some that believed and some that did not, but look at the reaction from those that believed not. Moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, birds of a feather flock together, by the way, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women... Um, 
of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came there thither also. They came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timothy abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, which is where this um, epistle to the Thessalonican church was written. So Paul said, you know, brethren, our entrance in unto you was not in vain. But their entrance did not win a popularity contest. Their entrance did not get them an invitation to return from the city. Now, I thank God that um, for a blessing in this local town that we recently put up the tent. Um, we had some, some meetings there. I thank God for the blessing that the city um, not only allowed us to use their... their um, to use a to rent a grounds there that's available for rental, they not only allowed us to use it, but they thanked us for um, being able to keep the grounds nice. And they said, "You guys had a nice meeting, and um, we got some nice compliments and things like that." And I'm grateful to hear that. But that is not the measure of success. And by the way, as the gospel comes in power, you can expect to see the opposite of that happen in more than one place. If your measurement of success is men's approval then you're going to be a sellout and you're not going to preach the gospel in any kind of power. But when the gospel came in power to Thessalonica, what I want you to notice today, when he said our entrance was not in vain, our entrance was not in vain. I want you to notice that some of the people believed and some did not. And the people that believed went radically after Christ and the people that did not believe went radically after the devil and even persecuted them to strange cities. Now the Jews of of Berea were more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica. And they searched the scriptures daily, whether the things that Paul was preaching were so, whether or not it was true. And praise God for those people. And they came to Christ, many of them, the Bible says. But did you know there's no epistle to the church at Berea? And Berea is not mentioned by Paul as being an example to all of them in Achaia and Macedonia. Even though he had a better reception at Berea than he did at Thessalonica, he said of Thessalonica, our entrance in unto you was not in vain. He said, you brethren know it. And here you've got a church that's on fire, a church that is radically altered, a church of people that have had a dynamic change. And they went radically after Christ to the point that they were willing to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ after three weeks of preaching. And the other part of the town became so radically opposed to Christ in three weeks of preaching that they were persecuting Paul even unto strange cities and chasing him. Do you follow that today? Copy. Anybody copy? Anybody out there? All right, pay attention. So his entrance into them that was not in vain involved some people radically getting right with God and many people radically getting more wrong with God. Now, a lot of our modern day theology teaches that you're supposed to basically make everybody like you. And if you don't do that, you're not a good Christian. Paul would... Paul doesn't have any time for that kind of junk. Read his writings. Look what the Holy Spirit of God taught us through the Word of God. It is not the the applause that measures the effect of of a Christian. Everybody wants to hold up Billy Graham. 
And I don't want to speak against anything good God used Billy Graham for. And I don't want to bring up things that I see that I say, well, that wasn't of the Lord that Billy Graham did. I want to leave him alone and let God judge him. There's no point. I will just move on. But what I do want to tell you is that in our, just because he got applause doesn't mean he's holy. Just because presidents wanted to shake his hand doesn't mean that he was a mighty force for God or a great man of God. Just because stadiums would pack out with people doesn't mean that he did any good for God at all. Just because thousands of people came down at his altar calls doesn't mean that he did any good for God. I hope he did, and I'm not even going to go into all that today. I am not either for him or against him. I remain neutral on him and I don't even read about him or look into it. That's just a closed book for me. I leave it alone. What I'm trying to tell you is his numerical success has absolutely nothing to do with the effectiveness of his entrance and neither will yours. What does have to do with the effect of your entrance is whether or not the gospel comes in such power and with the Holy Ghost and with assurance that the people that get saved get saved and become followers of Jesus Christ, not just professors who you get to dunk in your baptismal tank and wave goodbye to them as they disappear over the sunset and you never see them again. But at least you get to report 75,000, 175,000, 17,000, or however many thousand saved that you want and put it up on your wall in a big plaque and tell everybody how holy you are, even though all of your great conversions are off in dope houses and meth labs and insane asylums asylums and divorce court and none of them are following Jesus that has no effect to you it doesn't matter because as you're as you're quick to say um, I don't keep the great white I don't keep the lamb's book of life that's not my job my job is to win souls no it's not your job is to be a a witness for Jesus Christ And if our witness has no practical effect on the people around us, then our entrance is in vain. If our witness can only get people to make a momentary profession and never to actually become followers of Christ, it is a joke. That's no better than what the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses do. And I I meant every word of that. That is no better than what the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses do. And you might even be a saved person yourself doing it. But your effect and your entrance is in vain. The, The fact that Paul's entrance was not in vain was not because of nickels. He didn't get any nickels from them. We'll see that as we read the rest of Thessalonica, uh, Epistle of Thessalonica. It wasn't in noses. He didn't get very many noses out of it. He started a fledgling church. They took off without him, and their reputation was known throughout the whole region, and everybody knew Paul didn't have anything hardly to do with it other than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and move on. He didn't get much recognition for it. He didn't get anything really to gain for it. He didn't get to stick around and enjoy the fellowship of those people, but but they stuck with Christ and they followed Christ. And that's what we want to see. That's what we want whenever we talk about an entrance that is not in vain. We want people to turn from their idols to the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. That is the ultimate success of an evangelistic band and of an evangelistic outreach is people that have turned from their dumb idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered delivered us from the wrath to, uh, to come. But I want to tell you something today. If you have that kind of impact, 
if people are radically getting saved and God is allowing you to have a part in that ministry, then it, it should go without saying, but it doesn't. I have to say it, and we have to say it, and we have to outline it in bold because of all the junk we've been fed, and we need to hear it today. If people are being drawn by God... If people are being radically saved by God, gloriously saved, where they turn from their idols to the living God, where they look to Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, you can rest assured that there will be more people turned antagonistically against the gospel by your ministry than any other time in your life. The more effect you have for Christ, the more of a counter effect you will have um, in in this world as far as the devil's attacks and the rage of the enemy. When the gospel is being preached in power, the enemy hates it. The enemy wants to shut you up. The enemy will attack and the devil is a troublemaker. He's a liar. He's a rabble rouser. The devil loves troublemaking. He loves sowing seeds of discord. And the more effect you have for Christ, the more power there is on your ministry to preach the word of God, the more you can rest assured the devil is going to hire his thugs to come against you. It is part and parcel with it. Now, you want to measure your success by your nickels and noses. And nobody ever mad at you and build your mega church and claim all your big numbers and everybody like you in the community. It ain't going to happen. I already talked to you about ruining your entrance through your own stupidity, ruining your entrance through bad body odor. Okay? If you try and go soul winning and you go out and you clean out a manure pit and you've got that manure up to your armpits and then you go out door knocking and you say, well, I don't have time to take a shower. I'm going to go as a farmer. They ought to accept me just like I am. And you go knock on that door with that sticky, ooey, gooey green manure that's been sitting there rotting in the pit for months all over your body and the flies landing on you and stinking. You're going to ruin your entrance. We've already been over that. You can ruin your entrance. I'm not talking about that. But whenever you are doing everything in your power to give no offense yourself, but you are preaching the gospel of Christ with power and with authority, you will have enemies. The Bible says, beware when all men speak well of you. I want you to look. Let's see if we even have time here. We're at, yeah, we got a little time. Let's look at the next verse. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Let's go back to Acts chapter 16 and look at Philippi real quick and this entrance that he had in Philippi and the reaction of the Philippian town. Acts chapter 16. Listen to me today. There are, I don't know if I could count on one hand evangelists that have the kind of success, measurements of success that the Bible has. We all have our humanistic ideas and our, and our perverted ideas about the success of the gospel. So here in Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 12. 
it says, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, which means she was devout. She worshipped God, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this here. Whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And so this is, now she has been born again, saved. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying the same followed paul and us and cried saying these men are the servants of the most high god which show us the way of salvation and this did she many days but paul being grieved turned and said to the spirit i command thee in the name of jesus christ to come out of her and he came out the same hour and when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone they caught saul paul and silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrate saying these men being jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive neither to observe being Romans and the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them and when they had laid many stripes upon them they cast them into prison charging the jailer to keep them safely that's about as rough an entrance as you can have and right there most people call home and quit but not Paul and Silas. It says that the jailers thrust them into the inner city, inner prison, and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Acts 16.28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And thy house. Don't you twist that. His house had to believe too. Everyone in his house to be saved. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, and, and there you see all his house believing in God, not just arbitrarily saved because he was, but believing in God themselves as well. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the sergeant saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go now therefore depart and go in peace but Paul said unto them they have beaten us openly uncondemned being Romans and have cast us into prison and now do they thrust us out privily nay verily but I let, let them come themselves and fetch us out and the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates and they feared and when they, when they heard that they were Romans and they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comfort them, comforted them and departed. Go back to First Thessalonians. He says here, after... 
Um, he says, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Now, in our snowflake day, our snowflake society, our council culture society, if you have contention, you are doing something wrong. If you make waves, you are doing something wrong. If people are offended with you and upset with you, you are being a poor representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know, and again, if you are causing offense because of your own stinking attitude, your extra biblical rules, your raw, coarse language, or anything else that you want to throw in there apart from the very word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are wrong. But if you are preaching the gospel... The true, unadulterated, unadded to, and unsubtracted from gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the Holy Spirit of God is coming in power to attend the preaching of the word of God, you are going to be persecuted. The Bible says, yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It cannot happen any other way. You will be persecuted. Now, sometimes you'll have a nicer experience than others, but there will be days that you will be persecuted, maybe many. Now, the success that the Apostle Paul quoted here in Thessalonica, to the church of Thessalonica is modern-day failure. His boldness in the face of opposition is modern-day troublemaking, and his unstoppable, unquenchable desire to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to souls is modern-day fanaticism and labeled as radical. But it's Bible, and it's biblical, and it's right. His success is the kind of success that we need to look for. His boldness is the kind of boldness that we need. His unstoppable and unquenchable desire for souls is something that we need God to put in our hearts today. We need to go forward for Christ. Matthew chapter 5, he says in verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say, all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you you're in good company now we talked about your entrance if your entrance is based on your little rules that your club made then you're pretty obviously in some kind of company but if your entrance is with much power and much assurance and with the holy ghost and with persecutions and afflictions and strifes and tumults and stripes and imprisonments then you're in even better company than you'll ever have in your little holy club Old John Wesley and George Whitfield and uh, Charles Wesley and those other men had their little holy club in the Anglican churches and seminaries, and they did everything they could to serve God. They fed the sick, they fasted, they prayed, they studied the Word of God, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ as best they knew it, and then one day they got saved. How about that? Up until that day, their entrance was in vain. But whenever they in that holy club got saved and got the power of God on their lives, that didn't mean they ran around unholy. It just put power behind their holy. And no longer were their little rules and their fasting and their rituals the main thing that people knew about them as they once had known. They had once been known for their dedication, their fasting, their alms deeds, and their good works. But now they were known for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Christ and their entrance was no longer in vain. He says of the to the brethren there, we were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. Yet, he says there, after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of our God with much contention. That does not mean that they were picking fights and starting arguments. It means that while they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were people who were contending against them and they did not back down and they did not quit and they did not slow down. And I believe in my spirit so strong today that we need this message right now, right here. And we need this message to go forward with this ministry because there is going to be opposition. And opposition does not mean it's time to quit. Opposition means it's time Time to double down and pray harder and work harder and preach harder and go forward for Jesus Christ. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary wise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Uh, that, is, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the Lord, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Listen up. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that Asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Jesus Christ's own in Entrance into us was with much contention. It was much, with much strife. It was with much animosity. It was with people that would heckle him and attack him and harrow him and bother him while he was trying to preach the gospel and yet he carried on and he suffered on and he won a an, an eternal inheritance the church of Jesus Christ he bought with his blood now in 1 Peter 4.10 we'll close after this um, and as every man hath received the gift even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God if any man speak let him speak as the oracles of God if any man minister let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever amen beloved think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy if ye be reproached for your denomination no no that's not what it says is it if ye be re- reproached for your dress standards because you choose a certain uniform and you won't alter it come hell or high water if ye be reproached for your music. He didn't say any of that, did he? 
If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Again, I'm not saying go out there and get naked to win souls to Christ. That's a, that's a hellish demonic application and resting of Scripture. But I am saying let nothing get between the gospel and the sinner that you are taking the gospel to. Nothing. I've become all things to all men that through those things I may win some. You know, look that verse up because I butchered it, but find it later. He says here as we close, for he says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Father, please empower us, strengthen us, quicken us, Give us an effective ministry, Lord God. Make us effective for Christ's sake in bringing many sons to glory. Lord, through following our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.